This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with organizational well-being consultant, Dr. Rena Kotecha. While working in the demanding role of a frontline hospital doctor for the UK's National Health Service, Dr. Kotecha experienced anxiety, depression, and burnout. She finally recovered her equilibrium in part by using skills she learned training in mindfulness meditation at the British Mindfulness Institute. She left frontline medicine and in 2016 founded Mindful Medics, a self-care program for staff in healthcare settings. Rena uses evidence-based approaches that enhance health and well-being. She joins me today from London, England. Rena, welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to join you, Marianne. You say, and I'm quoting you here, whether we wish to be engaged in meaningful relationships, achieve personal goals, thrive in our careers, or contribute to society in some way, our health and well-being are core to how we go about this, and it starts with looking after ourselves. And this really comes from your own experience with burnout. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as you shared earlier, I'm a medical doctor by background. And part of wanting to get into medicine was really to be of service. It was very important to me to live a life and a career that is of service. And that was instilled from really my connection with my grandma from a very young age, who was always serving others in some way. And studying medicine, I wanted to be able to do the best by my patients, look after my patients. And I tried to do this as best as I could. But really, I started to struggle with my own mental, emotional, and even physical health as I progressed up my career. So I completed my medical degree in 2010. And by mid-2014, I was essentially off sick with anxiety, workplace-related stress, depression, and burnout. And this started, I would say, very early on in my career. And the irony was that I could probably spot this a mile off in my patients or other people. But when it came to myself, I had a personal blind spot to my symptoms of burning out and to my symptoms of anxiety and workplace-related stress. And what I realized when I was really unwell is that hey, I've not looked after myself in this whole process. I've not prioritized my mental and emotional health, particularly as I was going to, you know, try and look after my patients and quote unquote, save the world, so to speak. So what I then realized was, well, if I'm deplete, I'm not of use to myself. I'm not of use to sort of my family and friends. And really, I'm not of service to my patients. And so if you think about it, you know, let's say there's a person who has all the money in the world, they have the best job, they live in the nicest place, they wake up on a sunny morning, and everything is well in their lives externally, yet mentally, emotionally, physically, they're drained. Well, that person is not going to be able to enjoy their lives is not going to be able to enjoy connection with others or contribute to society. So I do think that we need to look at how do we keep ourselves full, so to speak, so that we can do all these things in life, you know, be creative, 
innovate where we need to innovate, connect with other people, serve others, and really contribute and thrive in life. I want to hear more about how you were able to do that yourself and what happened after you left medicine. But do you think that's a doctor thing to not see your own personal blind spots? Or do you think that we all struggle with this? I think there's certainly an element of we all struggle with this. Um, One thing that I have noticed in working with people who have struggled in the past with burnout is that they don't necessarily know that they're struggling. There's a sort of lack of awareness in the moment while they are struggling. And I think this is in part because of the nature of the signs and the symptoms when it comes to burnout. So For example, you know, we know that if you have a viral illness or if you have a fracture, you can take a blood test, you can do a PCR test, you could perhaps take an x-ray and lo and behold, you either have a fracture or you don't, or you have a virus or you don't. Burnout is not like that. Mental health conditions are not like that. They're more insidious. And when it comes to burnout, that sort of, as per the WHO, burnout is a sort of occupational phenomenon due to chronic stress, which is unmanaged over time. So there's a chronic timeline to this. And also the symptoms are very nonspecific. So there are symptoms which are to do with, you know, you wake up in the morning and you just don't have the energy to get out of bed or you don't feel like going into work, or you feel that you don't get the satisfaction from work where that you previously used to, you might become more cynical about your job, or be a little bit more irritable or passive aggressive in the workplace where you weren't previously. And so all of these symptoms, they're very nonspecific. So you can't necessarily say this is burnout just by looking at someone or even yourself. The other piece is that the symptoms of burnout are very much like the symptoms of mental ill health. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's burnt out will have mental ill health, and not everyone who's got mental illness will be burnt out. But the symptoms, there's definitely a crossover. So for example, a symptom that I really struggled with, and if I'm honest, still do, if I start to experience burnout, except now I'm more aware of it, is a lack of concentration. I struggle to concentrate. And I'm someone who is generally quite focused, but I do struggle to concentrate when I am burning out. But I also struggle to concentrate if I'm having a relapse of depression. So again, it's very difficult to pinpoint. So I definitely had blind spots. I don't just think it's a doctor thing. I think we all have blind spots when it comes to ourselves, And that's where consistently practicing mindfulness helped me develop a sense of awareness of what is my optimal state and when am I deviating from my optimal state, so to speak. What exactly did that burnout look like for you when you Mm. were experiencing it? The lead up to when you finally said, I've had enough, I'm done. Yeah. So I studied medicine and every day there was this sense of, I don't just want to be a good doctor, I want to be a great doctor. That sense of service, like I've shared, was instilled from a very young age. And so I was very passionate about the job that I was doing. 
And then slowly over time, that sort of passion started eroding. I wasn't so interested in my work. I wasn't so focused in sort of the ambition that I had previously. I would struggle to put in any more than what was the minimal required amount, which for me is just unheard of previously, like I'd always be the one who's going to do that extra research and going to do an audit and going to stay late and teach the medical students. Yet eventually, and I can't tell you when, but over a period of one or two years, I just was wanting to clock on, clock off, get home and do the bare minimum. So there was that piece. And then when I was at work, I just didn't feel so connected to my work as I previously had. So usually I would really love speaking to my patients and love getting to know my patients behind just their symptoms, so to speak. But it became very much a transactional relationship where it was like, give me your symptoms. This is your diagnosis. This is how we're going to manage you rather than the niceties around it. And I also just feel like there was that sort of reduction in a sense of satisfaction in my work and satisfaction and passion in the work that I was doing. But also, I just look back now and I felt like I was in a constant brain fog. I was going through day-to-day life in autopilot you know, being handed over patients to see the minimum that I need to do is make sure that they're clinically safe. So we'll do that. And then I just want to go home. And I don't feel like I was fully present, if I'm honest, for a couple of years. And that's that's a hard place to be when you've previously been so passionate about your role. And when, of course, you're expected to be passionate about the job. And at what point do you think you finally were able to say, I need to take a step away from this? Well, it's funny. So I'll give you the incident that happened. And this wasn't the exact incident that led to me taking time off, but it was definitely very close to the time where I had just done a set of night shifts working in emergency. So I was working 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. for a period of four night shifts. I just finished my last one and realized once I clocked off at about 8, 8.30 in the morning that on my way home, I realized I need to stop over at the local supermarket because I've got literally nothing in my fridge to have for breakfast. I had no bread, no milk, no cereal. Now, at the time, I was a cereal eater. So I decided I'd go to the supermarket and buy some cereal. And that was my aim. And so I get into the supermarket having just finished a night shift where I'd seen multiple patients, one patient who had an ectopic pregnancy, another patient whose arm I sutured, and that was a construction worker, a couple of sick children, a couple of failed CPRs, resuscitations. And I stood here in the cereal aisle close to the hospital. And as I'm looking at these boxes of cereals, For the life of me, I cannot figure out which cereal to buy, right? Now, consider I've just come off a night shift where I have basically been involved in saving lives, so to speak. I'm now stood here and I can't make the decision as to which cereal to buy. And in that cereal aisle, I had a full-blown panic attack where I'm literally shaking, palpitations, tears streaming down my face and struggling to breathe. And If you ask me, if I was someone who was looking at someone else 
in that situation, I would be concerned about that person's safety and concerned about that person's health. But if you ask me what I was thinking about at that time, it was, I'm such a failure. I'm no good. I have let everyone down. What if my colleagues see me? How will I be perceived? I need to get out of here. And so what happened was I basically got in the car, got home and was a complete mess. And that for me was one of the incidents which told me that I was not doing so well and that I needed to essentially get some help. Wow. I I feel like I lived that with you a little bit. So you left medicine, which sounds so Mm -hmm. like such a simple thing, but likely was not. And you spent the next couple of years doing other things and really discovered mindfulness. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I would say I didn't off the bat leave medicine. What happened was essentially became, as I've just shared, quite unwell and decided. And again, I look back now and think, how did I even convince myself that this was okay? But I basically convinced myself that I would need two weeks off sick. And within two weeks, I'll quote unquote, get myself together. And, you know, I'll be fine. Give me two weeks off and I'll be fine. And so basically what I did was I took two weeks off thinking that I would go back into emergency medicine. I would climb up my career pathway and become a consultant in neurology, which is what was the aim at the time. And two weeks essentially turned into two years. Of course, two weeks after my sick note ran out, I was no better. It takes a long time to heal when you're sort of running on empty at the point where I was and struggling with your mental health as well. And also, I was given very little help at the time. There wasn't so much of an awareness of the sort of unique challenges that doctors face and the unique needs that doctors have when it comes to their mental and emotional well-being. And so essentially was given very little help and decided sort of one month, two months in where I was just at home most of the time and not getting any better, that I needed to figure out how I could essentially take my health into my own hands. And I had no idea how to do this. And yes, it is ironic that I was a doctor and, you know, was able to look after other people. But how do I manage my own well-being, my own self-criticism, my own judgment, my own sense of failure, and the complete depletion and exhaustion that came from the burnout and the mental health challenges? So I was living and working in Cambridge in the UK at the time. And one day I'm walking along the high street On a day where, you know, most quote unquote normal people working, normal people my age at least are working. And that's another thing. I had this very self-critical mind and voice, inner voice, which told me I was not normal and I was a failure and blamed myself for being in this situation. Bear in mind that the backstory here is that I was working in a hospital which was 
in the UK, they call it under special measures, which means that there are lots of systemic problems within that hospital. There were rotor gaps. We were overworked, underfunded, under-resourced. But of course, I told myself that I must be the problem rather than anything systemic because all my colleagues seem to be fine and just get on with it. So the problem has to lie with there being an issue with me. Anyways, what happened was I'm walking along the high street one day and I come across a sign and it says free lunchtime meditation. Now, at this point, I'm essentially a junior doctor in the NHS with a very big student loan debt. And, you know, I'm not earning money. I'm not working. So I have time. It's free. Let's go in. And so I went in and I came across this beautiful elderly English lady She was literally, must have been about 70 years old, dressed all in white with this kind of long, flowy, silvery hair. And it literally felt like an angel had descended into my life. And I sat there and it was just me and her. And of course, again, this was an opportunity for me to tell myself, well, of course, it's just going to be you and her. She's retired and you're not normal, Rina. Normal people go to work. So I sat there with her and, you know, it was meant to be a meditation. So, you know, she asked my name and when she asked my name, there was like this silence and I was expecting the next thing I was expecting was, well, what do most of us expect, right? When you meet someone for the first time, the two questions are, who are you? And what do you do? Right. And so the next question I was expecting is, what do you do? And I really didn't know how to, at that point in my life, answer that question. It's like, well, I'm a doctor, but I'm not working. I'm currently off sick. I just didn't want to go down that route. So in anticipation of her next question, after she asked my name, I just started crying. And I cried and cried and cried for about 20 minutes. And I think that crying was some form of release. And interestingly, after I cried for maybe it wasn't 20 minutes, maybe it was shorter, but it felt like a long time. I thought, she's going to ask me, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? And interestingly, she didn't. She turned to me with so much love and compassion in her eyes, and I could feel it. And she said, shall we breathe? And I was just taken aback, like, she's not going to psychoanalyze me. She's not going to ask me what's wrong with me. And so we basically started breathing and she led me through a guided meditation practice. And after those five, 10 minutes of practice, all I can say is that I felt a little lighter and it was so tangible in terms of my being. It was like I had just been given space to be and to breathe. And for me, there was something very healing in that moment about that, that I basically continued with the practice. I went back that evening, we had another class, and I continued. And I've not stopped since. So that's how I came to the practice of meditation and mindfulness back in, I don't know, 2014, I guess it was. And I think a lot of people listening, I don't think you have to be a doctor to find that your story resonates. I think everyone Mm -hmm. at some point has experienced stress and anxiety and feeling overloaded by their work, whatever that work looks like. 
And I think it's interesting that you thought that you could take two weeks because that's what we all think. I have a family member who, you know, was also feeling that, you know, they needed time off and they went to their doctor and asked for two weeks note. And the doctor said, this was about three years ago, the doctor said, I'm not going to do it because two weeks isn't going to do anything. Mm. Basically, what she said was you need to make systemic changes. You either need to leave your job or you need to find a way to do your job differently, or you need to find some other way to get through this, but two weeks doesn't do anything. And I think that most people don't really realize that. I think they're with you. They think a couple of weeks and I can get back to it. And that's not usually the case. So, you know, for someone who is listening to this and is maybe in the middle of this and thinking they have to quit their job or take Mm -hmm. two weeks off, like, what would you say to them? Really great question. And actually, I'm just really happy that I get to share my perspective on this is the first thing that I would say to someone who is currently struggling with some level of workplace related stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, etc. is please don't think that it's somehow all your fault, or your fault at all. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in this judgment and self-criticism where we tell ourselves that it must be us and we're a failure somehow, we're no good, and look at everyone else and say, why can't we just be like everyone else who seems to have it all together? So the first thing is to turn to yourself with compassion, just as you would a friend or a loved one who is going through difficulty. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing that I would say is, yes, unfortunately, this is not like a sort of viral illness or bacterial illness or, you know, something where you can just take a course of antibiotics and you're going to suddenly feel better and get over it. If you are at a point of exhaustion through burnout, that mental, physical, emotional exhaustion, It can take months, if not longer, to figure out, but that doesn't mean that you can't take small steps. So for some people, taking a period off is required. And for me, that was certainly the case, like I needed to take some time off. But for others, it might not be. For others, it might be that they're working in an organization where the predominant work that they do isn't aligned with their personal values or their personal passion, so to speak. So I'll give you an example. I was working with a gentleman who was in the tech sector, and he was by trade a software developer. He was a coder, and he absolutely loved to code. That was the thing that made him just get up every morning and do what he loved to do, especially in his early years. But what he found is that as he was progressing through his career, While he was getting promotions, all the promotions that he was managing to get were leading him down more of a people management route rather than a sort of getting his hands dirty and doing the actual code. So now he found himself getting promotion after promotion, becoming a manager and a team leader of teams who do the coding. And actually, he started basically burning out and becoming more cynical at work, having a reduced sense of uh, satisfaction in the workplace, because ultimately, he was not doing the work that he was most passionate about. And it took a lot of self-awareness for him to realize that 
needed to not necessarily go back to coding as he was the first year he was out of university, but equally he needed to go back on some level to having coding be possible. So this is something which, you know, he worked out with his manager, so to speak, and that really helped him get back a sense of autonomy in his role. So that's where you gain an awareness of this that makes you come alive and try and gain some autonomy and flexibility if you can in terms of the type of work you're doing or for some people asking for a reduced workload, reducing their hours and for some people having more flexibility around the timings in which they work or from where they work. So, you know, I know that there's a lot these days around people moving from initially working from home to now going back into the office, so to speak. So that's one thing. The second thing is examining your boundaries. Like a lot of people who do get burnt out, and this was certainly the case for me, find that they're burning out because they take on extra work. They take on a lot of the discretionary work that needs to be done. You know, they'll stay back late in the office. They'll skip lunch just to get things done. And of course, they're energetically depleting themselves. And partly this is because for some, there are personality traits, which mean that they're perfectionists or they're people pleasers. And so they can't say no. And I know for one person in particular that comes to mind who has benefited from mindfulness-based CBT therapy, where they've examined, they've gained a sense of self-awareness around who they are, examined their boundaries, and also then started to work around basically saying no. And this has helped them get a better work-life balance. So what I'm saying is you don't necessarily have to just, you know, go off sick and leave your job and change your job. It might be changing elements of your job, getting some more autonomy or flexibility in your role, examining your boundaries. And then there's the piece around having life outside of work as well. You know, having fun outside of work, taking time to unwind and self-care connect with friends and loved ones. Even that has a role to play. In terms of mindfulness, how exactly do you think that people can be using mindfulness in their day-to-day work to perhaps prevent burnout or manage it? I would say that mindfulness is not a panacea. It's not going to miraculously, you know, you don't do 10 minutes of mindfulness meditation every day and suddenly you're no longer burnt out. What happens is when you do experience burnout or when you do experience chronic stress, which is essentially what leads to burnout, is you are in a state of sympathetic overdrive where the body's fight-flight response system is heightened. And so this can lead to lots of manifestations. For example, you might be more on edge, you might be more irritable, you might be a little bit more struggling with trusting people in your work setup, you might be struggling with physical manifestations like palpitations or shortness of breath or the racing mind. And that means that you struggle to sleep at night and switch off. What mindfulness can help you to do is to 
calm down that sympathetic overdrive. You calm down. And we see this in research studies in people who practice mindfulness and we see that they go through functional MRI brain scans. And as they practice the mindfulness meditation over time, the amygdala, which is the body's sort of initiation, it initiates the stress response. It's an area of the brain, a very primitive area of the brain, which initiates the stress response. We see that that starts to calm down. And as that starts to calm down, you naturally start to feel calmer in yourself on a neurological and even physiological state. Your body's stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol levels will come down. And so what mindfulness can allow you to do is optimize your mental, emotional, neurological and physiological state so that you're calmer, you're more relaxed on a day-to-day basis. And we know that people who feel calmer and are more relaxed as they're going through their daily life and routine, we know that they have sort of more perspective in terms of what they're able to do and what they're able to say no to. They have more um, sort of decision-making agency, you know, the higher order executive functioning, which is controlled by the prefrontal cortex. When we practice mindfulness, we actually bring that area of the brain online. So the prefrontal cortex comes online. It reduces the stress, the stress symptoms, and we're better able to think more creatively We're better able to make more effective decisions, think more logically and rationally, and create well-thought-out responses day-to-day. So mindfulness can enable all of this, which helps with sort of the productivity and performance element of work. But having said that, given that burnout is a result of chronic stress in the workplace, which is unmanaged, we also need, on a systemic level, change to happen. For example, if I'm thinking of healthcare, a system is funded, a system is resourced, changes in the processes to make them more efficient. So all of that has to happen. And we can't just put the onus on, you know, giving employees mindfulness training and say, hey, become more resilient, and then we'll pile on more pressure so you can deal with more. So I just want to put that out there as well. What can somebody listening now do in their workspace right now mm-hmm. that takes a mindfulness approach to help them manage? Because there's right. people so, that think so, that it involves, you know, mindfulness, if you don't necessarily know what it is, you think it requires an enormous time commitment. You have to go sit on a cushion somewhere in a quiet room, but that isn't what you need to do to get no. benefits. No, it's not. So mindfulness is a present moment awareness of what's happening as it's happening, both inside of yourself and as well as in the environment with an openness, curiosity and kindness. Okay, so one way to practice is by bringing your attention to your breath, right? So if I asked you to focus on your breath, you can't focus on the breath that's just gone or the breath that's to come you will naturally come into the here and now, into the present moment by focusing on the breath. So, you know, for those of you who are listening, I invite you to do this with me, is just take a moment to take in a few deep breaths into and out of the body. 
And as you do this, just notice where the breath is felt most vividly for you. So this might be for some at the nostrils, for others around the area of the chest, with the rising and falling of the chest, and for others, the abdomen as it rises and falls. So just taking a moment to breathe in and out. Now, as you do that, as you start to deepen your breath and bring an awareness to your breath, just notice how you feel within the body. Is there a shift that's happening? Now, Marianne, since you're online here, I'd love to know if there's a shift that happens even in those two or three moments. I think there's a bit of a release, like, you know, I'm engaged and focused on what I have to do right now. What's my next question to you going to be? But in that moment, there was a release. It was just a little bit less of being on the surface and being just a bit Mm -hmm. more loose. Yeah. And so what we know is that when we're stressed, right, one of the symptoms of stress is we're holding on to a lot of tension, right? And when we start to bring online the parasympathetic system, which is the anti-system to the sympathetic, the body stressed system, when we bring online the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest system, we start to experience a little bit more relaxation within the body. And so that might be what you're experiencing in the moment. Now, that doesn't mean that you're floating off into cosmic ooze and you're no longer present to me or you're no longer present to the task that you need to get done. But just by taking three deep breaths into and out of the body with full attention, you can start to create a shift in your neurological state for more relaxation and calm and even for more attention, which then allows you to pay more attention to the task at hand. So what I'm saying is, no, you absolutely don't need to be sitting on a cushion and lying down for prolonged periods of time listening to a 45-minute practice. Of course, you can do that, and I advocate it, but you can also integrate moments of rest and relaxation within your day just by focusing on the breath, for example. And there are lots of different practices you can do as well. You work with people outside the medical field as well, you know, tech, construction, and other non-medical fields. What do you hear that people are struggling with in their workplace? So at the moment in the technology sector, quite honestly, the phrase, which I don't personally like to use because it's very visual for me, but the phrase that I've heard a lot of is it's a bloodbath out there. Like it's been really difficult for a lot of people because of the redundancies in the technology sector lately. And as a result, it means that those who have been made redundant are obviously, you know, worried about their income and needing to find another job. Those who have stayed within the organization and haven't lost their job, well, you know, there's more for them to do because there are less people, the headcount is less, but, you know, the work is still there. So there's a lot more pressure. That's definitely happening in the tech sector. In the construction sector, as an example, 
I've noticed that there are a lot of supply chain issues, and this is partly due to COVID. In the UK, there's added things like Brexit, for example, and partly due to the issues in the wider world with what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. And because of that, you know, the supply chain has been affected. And so that puts added pressure in terms of people's caseload and workload in order to get the work that they needed to get done, done. And of course, then there's the pandemic and the consequences of the pandemic, which still remain. So, for example, in construction, a lot of construction was halted during the pandemic. And so now there's a delay. And of course, delays cause problems. They cost a lot of money. And so that adds to pressure and the pressure is filtering down all the way from the top downwards as well. So there's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, and also a lot of uncertainty and anxiety around, you know, inflation, the cost of living crisis that people are experiencing. Most people have experienced across the globe energy price hikes, and obviously due to inflation, you know, day-to-day bills, food, cost of living is going up. So there's a lot of stress and pressure and It's an uncertain world right now. And people are feeling that in terms of their mental, emotional, and even physical state. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? Ah, good question. Hopeful and optimistic. I think having really struggled with my mental and emotional health, having essentially taken for want of a better word, a divorce from medicine, a career that I was really excited about, had dreams to be working as a consultant in a hospital somewhere, have my own practice. What I realized is that just because life doesn't go the way you had planned it out to go, doesn't mean that it can't be beautiful in and amongst, you know, all of the difficulties and the crap and just the yuckiness of it all sometimes or the stickiness of the challenges that we encounter. Something beautiful can come out of anything you experience. Um, For example, in my life, had I not gone through the anxiety, the depression, the mental illness, the burnout while working on the front line, I would have never discovered this beautiful practice of mindfulness, meditation, positive psychology, compassion and self-compassion. I would have never imbibed it into my life to the degree that I have. And I would not be on this call and serving people in the way that I now serve people. So that keeps me hopeful that whatever happens in our day-to-day life, we can turn it around and come back to our true north and our true purpose. And mine, as I started off this podcast saying, was always to be of service. And I feel that I'm still doing that in my own unique way and carving out my own path. And that keeps me optimistic. And of course, when I hear from people who've gone through the Mindful Medics program or have heard me in a workshop or a lecture or some course, and they feed back to me that the tools that I've shared have helped them, that really keeps me hopeful. So I think we can always come back stronger. We're very resilient as human beings. And actually, It's now a case of life will throw punches at you, but you just got to keep getting up. And that's what I do. Dr. Rina Kotecha, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.